Welcome to Building Ideas, exceptional people discussing inspired experiences that create an enduring impact on our communities. Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com. Hi, this is Bill. Welcome to the podcast today. We have got a great pair of guests on the show. Yes, guests. For the first time in the young life of this podcast, we have two guests together because we know them both. We've worked with them both. We have an incredible amount of respect for both, and they work together. They're business partners and design partners. And so we figured there's no way to get one on the show without the other because they complement each other so well. These two gentlemen, Julian Lynham and Chris O'Hara, are the partners and owners of Studio NYL, structural engineers and facade designers headquartered in Boulder, Colorado. With Julian is a native of London, England, and after beginning his career in London and working for some multiple disciplinary firms, ended up emigrating to the United States and found himself in Boulder, Colorado. Through the process, he met Chris O'Hara, a New York native and a Notre Dame grad, a very passionate fighting Irish sports fan, lured him to come to Colorado where they worked together for another firm for a number of years and then eventually went out on their own and formed Studio NYL. These two are passionate about design, structural engineering, and realizing owners and architects' visions for projects in new and creative ways. And one of the things we love about this podcast is getting to know people who are innovators in their careers, in their professions, in their areas of expertise, and these two are doing that. They're not only educating their peers in the structural engineering and facade design world, they're also educating architects around the world in new and innovative ways to deal with structure, facades, building envelopes. They're both passionate husbands and fathers. Um, when they're not doing structural engineering, they're usually outdoors and with their families. And so uh, they're just great down-to-earth people. And we know you'll just enjoy having them on the show. So welcome to Building Ideas, today's exceptional people, Julian Lynham and Chris O'Hara of Studio NYL. As you can tell from my accent, I grew up and was educated in England. Um, spent the first 10 years of my career in London. I met my future wife there and moved to the States and uh, started working in a firm, a little small firm in Boulder. And uh, a few years into that, uh, Chris joined the firm and uh, we worked together for about three years and then realized that we wanted to push in certain directions for more creative, higher-end design and decided it was a good time to break off and form our own firm and basically chase down all the kind of people that we wanted to work with, fun people, um, fun projects, creative people. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how NYL started. Uh, well, backing up, I think we, we both kind of ended up in Colorado on a lifestyle choice. And I know when I met Julian, I had been out here skiing and I took a couple of days at the end of the trip to kind of reverse interview and figure out if I could ever move to Colorado professionally and, you know, be <laughs> satisfied. I'm so full of rotten in New York working on insane projects all over the world. And um, at the time I was working for a British firm, I helped open their New York office and I ran into Julian and he knew all the people I knew in London. And it was just, they just kind of hit off. We had the same attitude towards design. We, we both wanted to just work with the, the best architects in the world. And, mm-hmm. It just hit it off, and I had this five-year plan that maybe, you know, I'll move to Colorado then. And then Julian called me incessantly for, like, months <laughs> until I eventually agreed to move. And uh, and then we've we just been together ever since. I mean, it's been a fun relationship. So, Julian, you stalked him. You got him out there. You got him out west. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, once you meet somebody of Chris's caliber, you, you just want to do projects together and have a lot of fun mm-hmm. and we and we have so, so chris you talked about that you all knew mutual folks from your work um working with a, a british firm and obviously um, julian is a native of england you know who are some of the key people that maybe help bring you two together you know the like-minded souls the individuals the the kinds of projects or people that made you realize your kindred spirits in business and in design 
Well, I think it, it's kind of interesting, Bill. If you actually go back, I think it's like probably about 10 years ago now, there was a, an article in Architecture Records talking about the top influential engineers. I, I think that was 20 years ago now. Is it 20 now? <laughs> yeah, we're old. <laughs> and uh, it was amazing when you it had a world map and it was kind of highlighting people of high influence all around the world that kind of, you know, collaborated, helped lead teams. And, and there were people pretty much everywhere apart from uh, Asia and Australasia that Chris and I either directly knew or had worked with or knew of somebody very closely that was working in another firm. It was absolutely staggering how small our profession was, and especially more limited towards the sort of creative structural engineers um, that inspired us. So in that respect, you know, we had a similar background in terms of working with very influential people. Um, some of the people I work with in London, I uh, spent 10 years of my career there um, and now run some of the highest profile practices in the UK for structural. Um, so people like Penny Cara, Albert Williamson-Taylor, Robin Ad Adams, they're the ACT2 people, AKT2. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're working with everybody you would hear on the top end of architecture, Fosters and Zaha IDs, Heatherwick, everybody. So, you know, that that was a very big influence in me. And even going back just a little bit to the beginning of my career, I mean, I'm, I'm dating myself here because I came out probably about 10 years into the uh, high-tech architecture movement, structural expressionism, so Fosters, Rogers, Brimshaw, Hopkins, they were incredibly influential. Our, our, our firm was working with them in London um, and all around the world. So, you know, being able to express the structure as part of the architecture was something that just was embedded in me at a very early age, and that just became, you know, one of my passions. How do we, how do we kind of show the the lay public how buildings are working? So that's kind of my my take on that. So, yeah. So for Julian and Chris, I'll ask Julian first. When did you know you wanted to be a structural engineer? What was your path to going into this profession? Not only just a structural engineer, but a structural engineer, obviously, with a huge focus on design and innovation. Well, my, mine was slightly circuitous. Um, from a very early age, I loved art and architecture. Um, so I was, you know, growing up in... In the UK, you're kind of surrounded by history, culture, very old buildings. So you get to appreciate, you know, how people have been building throughout the, the centuries, uh, even millennia uh, in some respects. Um, so I had a sort of passion for that. I was a little conflicted in that I didn't really know how to define what I wanted to do at university. Um, I was both fascinated by the sciences and the arts. And in England, it's, it's challenging because the education system there is very different. At age 15, you have to focus in one or the other. Mm. And that, that really was a, a major challenge for me. And at the time, I was probably leaning a little towards the sciences, so I ended up going more towards the science path, which then led to um, more of a, an engineering background to study at university because that's what the three major subjects I studied for years before going to university were so i kind of started off that route um when i got to college um i loved the engineering it was absolutely fantastic um but as i got through college and started coming out the other side and looking at careers obviously engineering was an obvious choice but i ended up deciding for the first firm i wanted to join um i wanted to join a firm that didn't solely do structural engineering. And in fact, I joined a company that was had a sort of nascent structural engineering group, five people in the firm, about 300 people that were doing all disciplines, all multidisciplinary work. So they had architects, interior designers, mechanical, electrical engineers, um, and structural engineers. And that was kind of the model in London at the time. It had been started by like Ovarup, mm -hmm. but our firm was following that multidisciplinary approach so that kind of got me into the aspect of more of an engineering focus at the time I was still fascinated because this is dating me again 
um, CAD was just about starting up in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were 3D digitizers, and the company I decided to join <laughs> was building a three-dimensional model of London, which now, I mean, you think, what, what's the big deal? But at the time, it was completely unique. Yeah. And I had a sort of computer background as well. My mother was a computer lecturer, and I had a fascination in that. So it's kind of a weird route that I got into engineering in some respects, but uh, I certainly loved it. Um, so that's kind of, I've still got a passion for architecture. It's still basically my my hobby, and pretty much any spare time I get, I read architecture books and look through architecture magazines and things. So it's, uh, you know, we kind of think of it, Chris and I have that same philosophy of, you know, we're part of the design team, and, you know, if people let us have our say, we We've been very influenced by architecture our whole of our lives, so that's what we bring to the table. How about you, Chris? What's your journey to structural well, engineering? Well, for me, when I think of structural engineering, at least the way we're doing it now, I, I didn't start there. I, I had a fascination with bridges. You know, growing up around New York, my dad was a New York City cop, you know, constantly going in and out of the city. And, you know, um, there's pretty much every type of bridge you could imagine as you go around Manhattan and the various boroughs. Uh, so I, I, my passion was bridges. So I, I went to university primarily uh, with the idea that I'm going to come out design bridges when I'm done. And um, that didn't quite work out because uh, I had a job all lined up because a firm that they just did nothing but suspension bridges and really cool um, you know, sculptural designs of bridges. And um, as it turned out, uh, Shockingly, there was a little bit of an economic downturn at the time. All the um, finances for the Port Authority of New York, State of New York, City of New York, as far as the infrastructure, was on hold. Mm. And uh, you know, as a result, so I needed a job. There was no way I was going to just sit around and uh, backpack Europe because I wasn't smart enough to go backpack Europe. That would have been a great idea. <laughs> um, instead, um, I, I ended up working for a contractor at first. I'm just kind of um, got myself a lot of field experience mm-hmm. and I uh, took the kind of work I can get. I was working on, um, you know, the elevated trains part of the New York subway system. I was uh, doing field work on power substations. Eventually did a lot of the site work on um, a waterfront park, which is where things really started to change a bit. And that, you know, there was a small building on the site, there's a boardwalk, there's a pier, there's shade structures, um, you name it. There's like just a wide variety of things on the site. And so um, I learned a ton, you know, because quite frankly, you learn a lot more from people in the field than you ever do uh, in a classroom. Absolutely. And um, that gave me a little bit of more chops, but I still wanted to design. I ended up getting uh, an opportunity to interview with a company just north of uh, Manhattan in Rockland County uh, that uh, was MG McLaren. And uh, they brought me in and you know, everything on my resume probably said, uh, don't hire him to design. But, um, you know, they had like a written test I had to take and it's all these trick questions, but you know, being a field person, I knew the answers pretty readily. So I became this experiment for um, the owner of the firm, Mal, uh, Mal McLaren, and um, he basically gave me everything that was non-typical and non-linear. So I was designing these park rides, floating structures. Wow. Um, I toured with the Stones, I did the British Babylon tour. Um, and since the uh, the British managed to screw up the way they fabricated part of the stage, I had to go to every fourth show and make sure it was okay, um, which was awesome. Uh, but anyway, that process, I, I learned how to approach structures and buildings in a way that people who have done a normal building couldn't. You know, it was, it was, everything was a combination of nonlinear thinking and common sense. And then eventually I got put on a, uh, one of the other things I got to do a lot there was uh, structural glass work. And we ended up working on the um, the Rose Center for Earth and Space, which is part of um, the Museum of Natural History in New York. Oh, yeah, it's uh, beautiful. Which at the time, beautiful was building. completely insane. Yeah. So we did the entire enclosure, the roof, the glazing system, and the structure for it. So um, pencil structures, structural glass, um, sculptural steel, all part of this. And I, that's when I think I truly became in love with architecture. And I, I finally got to see what bespoke architecture was about, what it took to get into it. And I was hooked from then on. Everything was about architecture, and then it, 
I uh, ended up moving from there to a firm uh, called Dewars McFarland Partners, Partners, which is the um, the British firm that helped start the New York office. Where I was uh, at the time, I was the only engineer licensed in the United States working. So uh, there's started off just like five of us, um, all of which are now like rock stars of their own right. Um, one of the uh, the guy who's leading the charge, a Brit, he uh, he runs the firm Accuracy O'Callaghan, James James O'Callaghan. And they basically do all the Apple stores now, whereas mm. previously Dewars McFarland did the first Apple stores. And they put me in charge of, uh, I think it was almost a billion dollars of construction. A uh, couple of convention centers, performing arts center in Philadelphia. Most of the work was Bignoli. Got to do a studio gang job. I mean, it was, I just fell in love with architecture through that whole process and uh, never looked back since. So, mm. um, you know, it's funny you talk about it as being like, when did you end up being uh, in engineering? And really, the, the question for me is more is like, when did you really end up in architecture? Because even though I'm not an architect in any way, legal sense of, <laughs> of the word, and, uh, but, you know, we, we, we're serving architecture through our skills as engineers sure. and design, design and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, the passion is not really the engineering. It's, it's architecture and how engineering can feed it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you two, um, you, know, you two are the owners of the business. You obviously have a great talented team and other leaders in the firm. How do you two complement, you know, where's the fit here with the Lego pieces? Cause I know you have strengths and you complement each other and you get along well. Um, so talk a little bit about how you all work in your focus areas in the practice and maybe a little bit about NYL's practice as well. Well, we're, uh, we're somewhat of a, a of a flat hierarchy. I mean, there's obviously Chris and I, the owners, uh, but below that, the way we kind of structure the firm, so to speak, is through people. We 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 them thought leaders. That's the current term that everybody's using. Um, and everybody has skills in different areas. I mean, as much as we want to train our structural engineers and our facade designers to know everything. Um, and the, the industry is so complex these days that you, you literally can't know everything. So wherever people's passions lie, you know, whether it's in computational design or steel or concrete or wood design, um, we let those people flourish and then people can come to them for um, advice if they're working on a project uh, that needs their skills or they're part of the team anyway. Um, and we try and encourage people to, you know, reach out to the rest of the team and advise them, you know, things to look out for in certain design scenarios, stuff like that. So um, we're a practice of, uh, I think, 18 people right now, 13 in Boulder, five in Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a variety of structural engineers. We have architects on staff, more on the facade design side. Uh, material specialist, construction specialist. So there's a wide variety of talents with us. Um, and the fun and games is that we really try and it's a, it's a one team approach. I mean, there's people that specialize more in structure or others that specialize more in facade, but wherever possible, we try to have both scopes on a project. So everything gets complemented and the things become more efficient. Yeah. Um, but even so we're all trying to learn from each other all the time. Yeah, it definitely comes from a mindset of, you know, best idea wins. There's a, I know one of the presentations I had to give a while ago on, you know, how we structured the firm. I had this shot from Braveheart where they're all like rushing, you know, the, uh, the British. And it's, it's, you know, there's a certain amount of in rebellion that we insist on the team having. Of, you don't think you're doing it the right, the, the best way. Prove them wrong and just do it. And, you know, that's how we ended up in the whole, genre of computational design which is and digital fabrication is trying to change the way we do things it's, you know these larger mega structures you know it's just hard to do the brute force method of you know cranking out calcs the way we traditionally do even with some of the new technology available yeah. but when you can do it with more of an algorithm base it changes everything I mean, you see that with um the facade we just finished uh well not just finished it just opened at sofi stadium in la mm-hmm. you know 35,000 panels we can design in an hour. The algorithms are developed and everything, every panel is unique. So all of that came from the team. And um, 
Like I didn't have that skill, and I still actually technically don't have the skill to run the scripting that my computational guys do. Uh-huh. I just know how to feed them all the data to put in the algorithm. Uh-huh. And you know, there's always this balance of that. I mean, we hire the team based on culture. Yeah. You know, if once if your resume, we get your resume, and we want to talk to you, it, they're good enough to be here skill wise. The question is, do you have that passion for design, that ability to collaborate, and the ability to just kind of evolve and move throughout, you know, where architecture leads us. Yeah. That's what we're interviewing for. Is that a hard is that a hard thing when you guys are I mean, obviously you have premier team members. I mean you guys are an elite firm. Has that been hard for you to kind of weed out the maybe non traditional technical I mean everybody has technical capability right in your field, but try to find that extra X factor within the engineers, architects and facade technical team members you look for is that a hard thing to do or are they coming to you if now? you're gonna ask if it's hard to find i think it's hard to find yeah but it when you see it you know it yeah um it, it, it's clear like the the people just just pop when you meet them even even the shy ones because we got to i mean two of our best team members actually they're all fantastic but there's two of them in particular that you know getting them to speak sometimes you got to pull teeth a little bit <laughs> But they're, they're brilliant, and the, yeah. the passion's there, and the want to there. Yeah. But if you know, you, you, so you got you got to just see it in the way they react to things, and um, it's it's really fun to watch. Huh. I think the other thing that's interesting is, I mean, a traditional engineering background, a traditional architecture background, obviously teaches you the basics. But uh, what we're looking for, um, especially on the sort of creative realm. It's for people that think, um, you know, not necessarily uh, non-traditionally, but also mm-hmm. have influences from so many different aspects of life. I mean, when, when we sit and think conceptually about projects, I mean, creative design doesn't just come from you, come from looking at your past technical experience and your technical knowledge. I mean, creative design comes from, for instance, if you've been traveling to a different country and you've seen how people do things differently, if you've been inspired by you know, some music or some art or design of furniture or, you know, all aspects of life can feed into how you think creatively about a project. And, you know, what, what, uh, one of our main approaches and why a lot of clients like us is not just the technical aspects of what we do in the complex designs, but, you know, we sit at the table with them and we'd love to be at the table on day one just saying, well, what are you really trying to get out of this project? I mean, what, why... You know, we're not going to come and tell you, well, we did 10 schools like this before. It's got to be done this way. What are you trying to do? What's your client trying to do? And how, you know, how can we then bring to the table something that's the most appropriate way of designing? And, 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 you know, some of that, for some aspects, perhaps the specialist aspects might be non-traditional materials. We, you know, Mm -hmm. carbon fiber facades and, you know, different products and aluminum stainless glass that people aren't using it every day but they're the most appropriate and they're what you're trying to get out of the design so people can think that way um, that's the kind of people we want people that aren't limited to just you know the regular engineering so to speak mm-hmm. and Julian hinted at the word why I mean why is, is huge for us um, for us to know why people are doing things like it, much as like most architects don't think their engineers want to get in the weeds with that we want to know why you ended up where you did. And the more we understand of that, even the compromises made and all these different things, the better we can do. And then as we start to, you know, design based on that, and we're, we're start giving options and ways of approaching it. We've got to turn around and tell you why our systems are working the way they are, and what the rules are, what's governing it, what's driving it. And then you really start bending rules mm-hmm. and, you know, you can start to manipulate things um, to be more efficient, to be closer to the original intent. I mean, there are a couple of buildings we've worked on where a subtle move of six inches brought it back to the original vision. Mm. And you never see it, but it was compromised out before we even got to the project. And we had to kind of unearth the old sketches to get there. And like, well, let's not give up on anything. Let's, let's look at it first and figure out what's the most appropriate thing. And, you know, the more data we can give each other or more options we can give each other the better the systems come out mm-hmm. and you know on your other question of like the inspiration stuff or like where these things are coming from 
like one of uh, our early signature designs, one of the ones helped launch us on the map, the concept study was, you know, a scan of the instructions for um, a closet organizer for my wife's closet. And the whole thing was based on cantilevering things off the building and hanging from the roof to induce tension and all this stuff. And it basically looks like something you go buy at Home Depot conceptually. On a big scale. And then, of course, we trick it out and make it beautiful. <laughs> I think I know that building. So for you guys, uh, yeah, it, so for, for you guys individually, you know, that, and you're kind of leading in down the path. You know, we talk about inspired experiences, and and I want to talk about um, a couple things. Maybe in the two of your individual paths to where you are now, what are some, what's a place in the built environment, whatever that is, that really inspired you? And then secondly, I want you guys to talk about some of the uh, projects you've been involved with to date and how, does that make sense, how inspirational they are to you as well? Because you've done some pretty cool stuff, some with us and many with international architects and people all over the country. But So first step, individual experiences for each of you that were um, uh, instrumental places. How, how, cheeky, how cheeky can I be here, Bill? I've got a few. It's probably going to be um, White Hart so Lane. I'm sure White Hart Lane is one of them, right, Julian? Because I, <laughs> I know how you roll. Actually, it, it's actually not on my list, shockingly. Um, it, <laughs> you like the new one, at least? Mentioned. Do you like the new one, at least? <laughs> yeah, we got to do a little bit on that one. But, yeah. uh, I'll let you... But, yeah, I'll... Just just start with it, guys, and and, and let's see where this goes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, from a very from a very young age, as I mentioned earlier, I was inspired by places I visited. I was actually a, a, a choir boy in a cathedral choir. Mm-hmm. So whenever the main cathedral choirs went on holiday, we got to visit some of the amazing cathedrals in and around England. Mm-hmm. So you know, you go to Salisbury Cathedral, eight hundred years old the tallest spire in, in the UK, just over 400 feet. Mm-hmm. You know, you walk into a place like that and you're absolutely floored by the architecture. You're floored by the the sound, the acoustics in places like that. Um, so, you know, that, that sort of built environment spoke to me in many ways from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was growing up, I was uh, influenced by a really good friend of mine who started his career at the same time as me. He was Egyptian and we went touring around Egypt for three years. Uh, sorry, three weeks. I wish it was three years. Um, and we we went inside the uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza, mm-hmm. uh, Khufu's Pyramid, the Pyramid of Cheops. It's the oldest and largest of, largest of the three on the Giza Pyramid complex. And to be honest, it was kind of like an Indiana Jones moment. You go inside, you're allowed to go inside and go up the inclined tunnel uh, up to the king's chamber, and to be honest, I've, I've never had chills up my spine like that. That was beyond belief, being inside something that ancient, had a purpose, um, you know, tied to spiritual dimensions and everything. So that was inspiring. And then to bring it to a little bit more recent times, um, as I was starting my uh, engineering career, I got to visit the Pompidou Center in Paris. That was a classic Rogers. Mm-hmm piano and Arab project. Um, and if you're familiar with it, the, oh, yeah. the concept, the very young architects at the time, they were just, they had no idea they were going to get selected. They put in this radical idea of basically turning a building inside out. It was a container for art. It had museums and performing arts spaces. But in terms of turning it inside out, I mean, the MEP and the circulation systems and everything was on the outside of the building and structurally expressed. There was an amazing structural castings and one of my favorite inspiring engineers of all time Peter Rice used to be an Arab um, to design that so mm. that was inspiring and then coming to modern times um, Foster's British Museum the Great Court where yeah. he took basically a lost space in the middle of London which was an interior courtyard and transformed it by uh, making it part of the museum and having this fantastic Polaroid roof which yeah. is basically like a, a surface of revolution generated from a sphere, but it's it's the geometric form that makes that structure so amazing because the efficiencies you get by having like an arch-type form is you can lighten up all the structure. So he created a basically a glazed courtyard that is just one of the yes. best spaces in it's, London in my experience. It's so spectacular. It's on my sorry list. Sorry to kind of, of ramble on a bit, but 
Yeah. Unbelievably. Oh, it's beautiful building. How about you, Chris? What's your, what are some of your instrumental bands? You talked about the bridges as a kid growing up in and out of the city in New York. Yeah, I think for from the architecture side, just to throw um, something against Giza, for me, uh, Tikal in Guatemala would blow me away. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Tikal, I mean, it, if you remember the last scene in Star Wars where they're getting their medals and there's the pyramids poking up over the jungle, that's Tikal. Um, so it's this, this is the largest Mayan city. It's absolutely amazing. But for for me, a lot of the the more modern stuff that we came into i really kind of inspired by you know the Bauhaus era and uh, mid-century modern mm -hmm. we were blessed with the opportunity to work at st john's um in uh, minnesota oh, yeah. in the cleverly named collegeville minnesota where i think there's nine marcel breuer buildings they're all like marcel breuer post nervy yeah. so they're all this concrete glory <laughs> uh -huh. um and they're absolutely amazing so we got to work on the alquin library we worked on um the bell banner to with to get a getty grant to try to do some reparations for that some elements on um, the monastery and then some the, the prep schools not technically not broyer but it's one of his disciples and walking around that campus your jaw just hits the ground yeah. um the other one i just kind of trick out because it's got a little bit of that brutalist concrete is the um biblioteca the Vasquez in uh, mexico city mm -hmm. and uh, basically it's it's like a three-pin arch of concrete from which they hang all the stacks for the library um, from the roof with these steel plates, and then they have glass floors. <laughs> and nothing touches the ground. They all just kind of float. It looks like you're in the middle of a Terry Gilliam movie. It's like Brazil. <laughs> and it, it, the, the whole building is just surreal. Um, and this massive space of all this book, all these books and uh, volumes hanging over you, but nothing touches the ground. Mm -hmm. uh it, it's really quite incredible and um so those definitely uh, the ones that, that stay with me today and as far as through the career i've kind of evolved where at first you know before we were thermally responsible and doing the right things and all that you know the more expressive structures like calatrava like tenerife and things like that just blew me away and then as we started to that some of these maybe are a little more brute force and just using more material to make sure that I started getting more into like Giano, like Julian mentioned, uh, like the Jabal Cultural Center. Uh -huh. That's one I always loved. Um, Nouvelle's uh, Louvre Abu Dhabi. Mm. I, the, the, the patterns and the forms you know, with the computational design, I really got into tessellation and started to really love it. Uh, so that, that job just sort of sings to me. And then, um, the more current ones, the uh, Orange Foundation by uh, Todd Williams and uh, Billy Sam, mm -hmm. uh, Broad Museum by DSR, Culture Shed, but also by DSR. So there's just so many amazing buildings. I find them just constantly amazed at what we're able to come up with uh -huh. as uh, our technology and materials and design technology and fabrication technologies just keep evolving. We keep coming up with cooler and cooler things. Yeah. So the two of you together in your practice, what are some of the buildings that you've either, uh, that have most excited you or some of the, I know you're doing so many and you have many that are confidential, we know, but what are some buildings you guys have been pretty I proud of? I think we should of? alternate. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, we'll go. There's too many. Julian gets to go I'm the gonna, first. Uh, Just go as long as you want. It's all good, guys. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll stay on the football theme, theme for you then. Of course so, you will. Um, of course we, you will. We had a competition winning entry with, Perkins and World Sports Division for a stadium in Dubai, uh -huh. sponsored by the the Sheikh, and it was going to be the world's first elevated FIFA pitch where you could walk underneath. So the, the whole concept was an Arabian bowl in the desert, and uh, we were doing structure and facade. And at one stage, we got to some crazy scheme where we were only going to touch the ground in either eight or sixteen places under the pitch. They so had massive concrete pylons cantilevering up. And the facade of the bowl itself was a, a, a structural steel diagrid that helped actually, it wasn't just purely facade, it was a structural facade in that it was helping support the concourses as they spanned out from these concrete pylons. So, mm -hmm. you know, 60,000 feet soccer stadium, we were absolutely floored that we were get the opportunity to work on something like that. And uh, unfortunately, it's still not built to date, but we, you know, we're keeping our fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> well, that one was also just insane because of the, how it happened. We were working on another project um, 
with the team in Boston that was uh, doing the competition. And they're like, hey, you want to sit and sketch for a little bit? And it turned out it was for the stadium. And we just sat down with a few beers and started sketching. I eventually got my flight moved, and we just kept designing for like a day. Came with like five, six different concepts, and and the inverted bowl one of and uh, one within us. And then we submitted it as part of the competition. You know, they had their boards. We added a bunch of boards for the structure and yeah. some more boards for the facade. And, and we ended up winning. And that whole thing was a trip. You talk about the the merging of like every trick in our book, whether it be tensile systems or t- computational design, you, you name it. We had to throw it all ahead to get it done. And then on top of it, they wanted it done in a ridiculous amount of time. It was, um, I think at the, I'm trying to remember the, um, I think the part we were involved in, which is just the primary bowl, so all the pre-function stuff we didn't do, yeah. was 600 million for that. And they go, okay, you won the competition. We need you in DD in four months. And we'd had these calls on that project where we would have to update the quantities for the entire project, not just structurally, but paint, fireproofing, everything, every week. Um, it was it was completely insane. I didn't sleep a lot during that one. Um, all right, so my turn to pick a different project. Nice. I'm going to go with uh, Marcus Hall, uh, the Bowen Whiskey Jackson job here in Colorado. Uh-huh. Um, it's a Colorado School of Mines. Oh, yeah, yeah. You showed it, me it's one of the ones that really put us on the map. Um, and I, I, the story I always remember from that one, of we have this heroic cantilever on the west side because it's an all-glass facade on that side. It faces west. We had to do something. Um, so we have a 60-foot cantilever from which we're actually hanging the facade from. And, you know, we're trying to figure out how to take money out of it. Just like every project, we have to take some money out. Of course. And I remember Peter Bowen, you know, rest of soul, he, he, um, we're sitting in a meeting and everybody's trying to figure out how to put columns in the corner of the facade so that it wouldn't be as transparent. Because keep in mind, at this time, BCJ just did like the first couple of Apple stores. Yeah. And so transparency is key. And he just goes, you know what? I've been doing this a long time. I think it works. And that was it. Cantilever <laughs> stayed, and then you know the rest of it was just us trying to show them how we can bring down the steel tonnage. And there's all these illusions that were created by you know, holding the underside of it flat and subtly sloping the roof of it to hide the structure. So, like wherever you are on the quad around it, you can never actually see the roof, mm-hmm. and it looks like it's only six inches thick, but it cantilever sixty feet. Yeah. Um, and then of course we did the facade on it as well, which is all this hung glass system with these steel fins behind it um and that one really that, that was the first major u.s project i think that launched us as far mm-hmm. as letting people outside of colorado know who we are yeah how has um the ever-evolving technology computational design software power right changes in the building industry how has that really equipped you guys with your creativity how has it change in what you're doing well, I think Chris alluded to it earlier in this, uh, the technology is available to the extent where we can investigate so many different solutions in a shorter period of time. So, you know, it's not, it's not a crutch as such. It's more a design tool. Um, it doesn't take away from obviously your inherent creativity uh, in terms of just thinking of ideas originally. Uh, so, but it is certainly useful, not just in the latter stages of design, but very early in conceptual design. So. I think having that sort of ability to use all these different programs and import data from other programs and manipulate it is, is essential to, to many of the projects we do. I think Chris can talk more fluently. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I'm actually going to go back to one of the lectures Julian used to give the students about, you know, the evolution of design um, and structures, you know, starting, of course, with his pyramids and working its way forward. Of Throughout history, there's these, jumps of either material advances or system advances like you know you start with obviously all these gothic arches and masonry type buildings and then we discover you know steel and then things start to evolve and trust and all these things happen through history and there's usually either materials or systems and they kind of alternate every 20 or 30 years or maybe even 100 years and sometimes or hundreds of years in the case of the pyramids but now 
everything is changing simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Material science is changing so damn rapidly. It, it's, it, it keeps us giddy with all the opportunities. Our ability to three-dimensionally model things, analyze things, is changed so rapidly, it blow your mind. Like when I was doing the amusement park rides, we couldn't conceive of moving structures with the technology we had to design it with. I actually had to trick the programs into moving gravity to make it think the structure was moving. It was like just just faking it out with vectors. Now we can do this like it's nothing. And not only can we do it, we can do it a hundred times in the span of a couple of hours. Yeah. And then um within the systems technologies are also changing. So all these three things are changing simultaneously where the technologies of the computer software didn't even exist more than 20 years ago. So it's, it's fun as can be. Like I think of like the Cineteca job we did, uh, was, which is my first foray in a computational design. We went through in a span of a week, a hundred different ways of structuring this roof. And from the beginning concept to where we ended up, we saved, um, 20% of the steel purely through changing the layout nothing changed in the form it looks exactly the same no matter what we did but in terms of the layering because it was using these lamella based concepts of mm-hmm. cascading structure just by subtly changing it we cut a massive amount of steel out of the project and cost um, you know, and, the, cost. and cost well it's yeah. real money yeah. and it, well then you know, the other thing we're getting on right now is tracking our embodied carbon in our structures so all that embodied carbon is gone you know it's and then on that one the challenges was uh, it was the president's outgoing project in mexico so this legacy project so he had to have it done uh before he left office and uh if you're wondering it's in december because we were hired a year prior in december and said not only do you have to design it but it has to be built um before he leaves office so we had to start creating high repetition in members. And I don't mean uh, it's the same beam size. I mean exactly the same, same holes and cuts, same everything. Yeah. And without that technology and that and the ability to run those algorithms and try to, you know, tetris all these pieces together in a form that's efficient, never could have pulled it off. So it's changing everything. What's the, uh, yeah. what's, what's next? What's next in the, uh, what's coming that you're excited about as far as related to the, facades and structures and innovative design i think the material science as chris alluded to is, is an interesting area where we're not even talking different materials but like nanotechnology and graphene and things like that but also 3d printing of structures i mm-hmm. mean that that's absolutely fascinating so those those are the things that are appealing to me to learn more about yeah and, and with the 3d printing the the it's not, it's not just digital fabrication and cutting and manipulating. We've been doing that for a while. The thing that's really exciting, there's people like Branch Technologies out there. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the, what the DI, um, where Paul Martin's working at. But anyway, these guys are advancing technology for additive 3D printing. Mm-hmm. So like when you think of 3D printing, like when you're working your wire filament where it just keeps spinning around and, and adding things and there's not waste, that's, that's kind of exciting about what we're able to do now. Um, I'm not sure I'm on talk about any projects, so I got to be careful. But you know, we've got a couple of study projects based on this technology using uh, fiber reinforced polymers. Um, so you know, you know, kind of like where that carbon fiber comes from, but doing it more with you know uh, fiberglass and, and um, plastics, but not not plastic like you think bad. Everybody thinks plastic bad, but you know, with these polymers, we're able to generate structures and facades that are thermally inert. So some of like the thermal bridging that we have issues with our facades. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, our structure can go more inside to outside and not cause condensation, not cause all this energy loss wow. if done right. Yeah. And the technologies these guys are advancing, and fortunately for us, letting us play with and you know, kind of in letting us play with the R&D elements of it is kind of exciting. And you know that what we can do from a digital fabrication standpoint, which is, you know, we've been work, doing these various workshops with different materials, whether it be polymers or terracotta or steel, mm-hmm. for you know a while now, and it it's really kind of exciting. And you know, some of this stuff may seem a little gratuitous right now and expensive, but as these technologies get parsed out, they start to become efficient and they mm-hmm. start to become the way we do things. And the trick is, you know, getting in there and learning the craft of where the cost is, where it isn't, 
and how to design it out. You, know, you think of all the stuff in NASA, you know, $400 ashtrays and stuff like that. It's like, well, it seemed foolish at the time, but that's also where Velcro came from. Yeah. And these things start to evolve and become part of our everyday. And it's happening a lot faster than it used to. Mm-hmm. Like now the gestation period is a couple of years as a couple of decades, as opposed to a couple of decades like it used to be. Absolutely. So one of the things we talk about, guys, is enduring impact. Um, you've kind of talked about the changes in the design and what you do in the systems and the technologies. You know, what are, and we've been dealing with for six months, this crazy COVID kind of pandemic reset, you know, what are some things, whether it's technology, whether it's the events or, you know, who or what has had an enduring impact on you, your careers or your business, you know, maybe more about the structural engineering business. Well, mine, mine start with my parents who, uh, gave me unconditional love and support throughout my whole life even when I emigrated away from them to the state but my father was uh, he was literally a rocket scientist and a sort of renaissance man he worked for the Ministry of Defense on some of Britain's uh, ballistic mi- missile technology oh, wow. and a lot of covert stuff in the Cold War that he was never able to tell me about so that was kind of frustrating in that he was obviously working on some really cool stuff, but it's all still under the official secret of that. Yeah. Um, but, he, you know, he, he was interested in the sciences as well as the arts and music. My mother was the same. She was a computer lecturer, but she was a crafting person, creative design. So, I mean, they, they, they started me off and not necessarily leading me down one path or another, but kind of opened me up to all different influences. Mm-hmm. Um, as I'd mentioned earlier, some of my early professional influences were with the teammates I had at, at the time it was at YRM Anthony Hunt Associates and then they broke off to become Act 2 so those guys were incredibly creative and, and pushing the really pushing the boundaries I mean in terms of technology and materials like we've been talking about so expressive structures um, and then you know to be honest uh, my best collaborator is Chris I mean he's amazing creative design and it's technical prowess and his business development skills. I mean, everything, you know, we're, we're a sounding board for each other, but uh, he's certainly an inspiration in terms of, you know, what we're trying to do and how we're trying to change the, the design world and influences as much as we can, as much as we can. So mm-hmm. those are, those are mine. Yeah. In terms of, of people, I'm going to go backwards because, because uh, Julian so wonderfully mentioned me. I mean, he and I together, it, it, it was, we're just kind of feeding off of each other and egging each other on. Like, I, I, uh, I don't know how you could ever start a business without a partner like Julian. I mean, it, it's been incredible uh, in terms of the amount of trust and you know inspiration that we're able to pull off of each other. I mean, he's, he's absolutely fantastic. And I think of you know so many people. Well, like Mike, Mike started the company on his own. Like, it's so much harder <laughs> than it is yeah. what we did. Yeah. Um, you know. There's, there's always this, you know, energy feeding off of each other that we've been able to do. And I'm not trying to knock other people who do it differently, but um, it's just so much easier and, and at least for me more fun. I mean, we didn't we didn't start the business together because we wanted to be uh, corporate raiders and just dominate the world economically. We started at Studio NYL because we wanted to design the way we wanted to design and we wanted to do the best buildings in the world. Um, and we didn't think there was any reason we shouldn't be able to, even if we were working out of my house at the time, just the two of us. And, and it evolved. Um, and that was obviously a long time ago now, but it's, you know, the two of us together has just been phenomenal. It's right? just a ton of fun. Then pre uh, Julian, the, the most uh, influential person in my career was a man named Attila Rona. And if that sounds like an intimidating person to be your mentor, you're right. It completely <laughs> was. Uh, man, it's absolutely brilliant. He uh, he worked with me on many of those amusement park rides. Yeah. He was the man in charge of the um, the Rose Center, mm-hmm. uh, and he he pretty much built my career. He taught me everything on the technical level. I I know, and uh, really more importantly, taught me how to solve problems and learn. I remember the uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was a kid coming in not knowing anything. And I constantly come in with questions and he just hand me a book and say, you have a question tomorrow, you're allowed to ask it. 
and, and that's how I learned. And that, that's before Googling and stuff like that. He, he just had this library of books, and and he didn't, I, I not only learned how to do it, I learned why it worked. And that's, yeah. you know, that was the most important thing that he was trying to instill in me. If he just gave me the answer, I, you know, I throw the equation out, I move on to the next problem, and I wouldn't have learned anything. Um, and he, he built me. Um, and then as far as work ethic, both my parents worked a ton, but my mom was frightening. Um, <laughs> she worked at a hospital um, when I was a kid running a lab there, special hematology, so blood work. Mm. Uh, but it, she also uh, worked at a doctor's office running their lab. Then she started a business to train doctors on how to run their lab. Then she also started teaching the hematology program at Long Island University. Mm. And what would seem like these are career path steps is, is not. She did them all simultaneously. Wow. So whenever I try to explain to people about like, you know, the kind of work ethic I developed, it's like, it's nothing compared to her. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> You're a, a small apple off the tree, right? Yeah. yeah she makes me feel like a quitter. I wasn't even really trying. <laughs> um, and that's like when I was back in the days of Attila, I remember sleeping under my desk because I had too much work to do. I didn't have time to go home. They'd come kick me in the morning. I'd go shower and get back to work. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, she just changed everything. Wow. By the way, we don't require that activity on my own to keep your desk. Actually, if anything, we've gone the other way. <laughs> like we picked everybody up because we remember what it was like. Um, yeah, I, I know pre-COVID, I've been in your office, and there's not a lot of incentive to stay indoors in Boulder, Colorado, with that view out of your guys' office. So, uh, yeah, no, nobody moves. Nobody moves here because they they are uh, trying to advance their career. They move here to climb a mountain, ski down it, Absolutely. ride a bike, run. And usually, unfortunately, a lot of these people frighteningly do it on like an Olympic level, which is kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. The good side of it, though, is the super talented people from all over the country want to come here. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, we're the only show in town that really does this kind of work here in, in Boulder. So it's, you know, the people who want to be outside find us and, uh, and they're talented. Yeah, it's great to be in a, a good place that people want to be. So the two of you, what have you guys learned Let's pivot as business owners and collaborators and designers, but what have the two of you learned that would help another organization have an impact or be successful? I think that the main thing is to follow your passion. I mean, honestly, if you don't have passion, you're going to be pushing things uphill. So, I mean, passion drives everything for us if you, as you've heard through this conversation. I mean, our passion for design, for architecture, for making things amazing and beautiful as much as we can is what drives us. Um, I think the other thing is in order to advance the, not just the business, but the industry is, you know, get, being involved with, with research and development, not, that, not necessarily in-house because we're a small business and can't afford it, but through teaming partners, things like that. And just, you know, don't be fearful about, you know, if it's not necessarily covered in the building code, that means that doesn't mean you can't do it because there's the alternative routes clause. Uh, if you can educate yourself enough and you can understand the materials you're using with them, I and that's what your engineering uh, talents give you, mm-hmm. if you can use that, then, you know, the project might be better or it might be more appropriate. So, and, and then the other thing for me is... Uh, you know, the giving back, we've touched on it before, you know, doing desperate for architects, um, lecturing to the next generation of architects to teach them engineering skills so that they're not sort of coming out into the real world, not as aware as they might be. And then uh, also volunteering on national committees and things, it, it opens your eyes. Um, I'm on a couple of national committees here in the States and then I'm actually the Institution of Civil Engineers of the UK there. I'm going to be the America's rep in November, mm-hmm. representing the whole of America. And so you get to learn things about the profession and the way decisions are being made or actually things are being thought about globally, not just nationally. Um, and that really opens your eyes to, you know, what are we doing and how can we influence the profession and, and influence, you know, the design teams. Uh-huh. through the things we're learning so those are the things that you know inspire me as well mm-hmm. julian stole the fun ones um sorry. go to the dirt but now the, go, into the, go into the rough yeah, stuff. The, 
yeah, to, but to build more on the, the R and D, it, it is critical as designers, even as a small firm. And there are ways of doing that, you know, through partnerships with the local universities or even universities further away. Um, for us as engineers, a little bit easier because a lot of these um, manufacturers and you know, fabricators need people um, to stamp and engineer their systems. So we can get in there and learn the toys and play with them. And, and uh, occasionally they'll let us do a few irresponsible things just to figure out how they work. And <laughs> we're able to do that. And it, it, uh-huh. it's a lot of fun. I remember we were doing a rammed earth house. I went down for like a long weekend and built um, a house of a contractor, a contractor who specializes in rammed earth. He let us come down and help him build his house. And that's how we learned how to do it. And you know, stuff like that is available to all designers, not just you know the multinationals of the world. And on the education thing, the more we can give back, all the stuff we're trying to learn or all the stuff we already are good at, if we're not sharing that, we're never going to get to use it. So we, we, we need to be educating our architects, our um, contractors, our partners, anybody involved. We need to be out there and doing it. And that's why Julian mentioned we're involved in so many of these organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, like Will in our office, he's on the, yeah. he's the AIA national representative to um, ASHRAE. Mm-hmm. So from a building energy modeling standpoint, from a facade standpoint, he, he's doing that. I'm on the technology and architectural practice committee for AIA mm-hmm. national. Uh, we're on our local boards of AIA and C, uh, Structural Engineers Association and things like that. The other one we're really big on right now is the, the Carbon Leadership Forum and mm-hmm. You know, trying to educate people on bicarbon and ways of designing around it, uh, not around it, but, you know, to basically use less material or use material that is putting off less uh, carbon dioxide. So, you know, how do we design for that? And that, that's, a, as a matter of fact, I was just doing a lecture on that this morning before this call. And it's one of those things that if we don't let you guys and other designers know what's out there, we can never expect to do it. And on the more nitty gritty side, I mean, you generally, if you're a business owner and you're starting a business, you're good at what you do, which is in our case, design, engineering, yeah. Yeah. Uh, structure. We're not good at accounting. Why would we be doing that? You know, hire that out. You know, I'm not saying ignore your books. You have to know your books as a business owner, but we do not need to be doing the data management. We do not need to be doing the input. There are people way more skilled with about it, and there are people we can find who actually really like doing that, that can do that for us. And we shouldn't be the ones doing it. Um, the more time you can get in your business to do what you're, what got you here and what made you think you could start a business in the first place, yeah. that's what you should be doing. Um, that's where you're going to be most profitable. That's where you're going to be most happy. Um, and that's where people are going to be most impressed with you to hire you to do it again. I think one other thing if I could throw in there, Bill, is uh, we, we learned a lesson early on uh, a couple of years in um, where we were advised to market what we the kind of work we wanted to get. So, you know, when you own a business, obviously, you've got to keep the lights on. You've got to keep a certain yeah. volume of work going through there. But sure. it's not necessarily you're going to put all those projects in your brochure. Um, so to, you know, identify your own brand put yourself out there in the marketplaces. This is the kind of project I want to do. You know, it was great for us to focus on the projects that, that really defined who we wanted to be. And, you know, the first couple of years, it's challenging because you've always got to credit other firms that you've been working at, projects you've done previously. But eventually you get to the stage where all the projects are, you know, Studio and Miles projects. So I think that's a key thing to keep focused on. Don't Don't put product calls out there, project calls out there for every single project you got, just be selective. I, I completely agree. I'm too yeah. often we're all tempted to chase everything. When at some point you got to just say, you know what, I want to chase what we're, what we want to do. Yep. I want to be aspirational. I'll certainly, like you say, you got to pay the bills, but clients and projects that you could aspire to your direction. I totally agree with you gentlemen. So, um, this has been awesome talk, guys. I, it's so good to talk to you. It's been a while, but uh, good to hear your voices. So what's next for NYL? What are you excited about? Well, I'm always excited, to be honest, uh, with international projects as well as mm-hmm. national projects. So when I can tap into my love of travel and you know, learning about other cultures and learning 
what other cultures respect in terms of buildings and structures and you know we get to play in different marketplaces with different labor rates different materials that's the thing that i love and we've been very lucky we've had quite a few international projects already and that's certainly one of our focuses um as we move through move through the next few years so that's the thing that inspires me probably the most mm. and you chris I'm not even really sure. I mean, we're, we're just having so much fun right now. I mean, it's, it's, I feel like every week there's like a new project, a new yeah. challenge that is, is got my passion going in a different direction. Um, you know, the, you know, trying to save the world and, and uh, from an environmental standpoint, obviously huge in, mm-hmm. in what uh, I'm trying to do right now, whether it be through mass timber design or just using steel and concrete more intelligently or uh, better facades. Um, that, that's definitely where my passion has been. Getting a lot into modularity uh, right now in terms of prefabrication. A uh, few things I can't quite talk about, but getting involved with the fabrication techniques and the toys is just way too much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, you, when you hear these things, you always think that these, they're going to be these ridiculous sculptural projects that are these look at me things that are totally inappropriate. That, that's not what it's about. It, mm-hmm. it, it's more about manipulating that technology to be more efficient and, and do things better. And if that turns out to be a box, then it turns out to be a box. But, you know, whenever you talk about these more advanced technologies, people tend to think expensive. And the reality is um, we're using it to try to make things cheaper and mm-hmm. perform better and be more efficient. You know, it's one of the lines we use a lot in the office is uh, renderings don't count. Um, and that'll, it just started with an architect who will go unnamed as was uh, being broadcast. But <laughs> the idea is, you know, one of the people we used to do a lot of competitions with, the stuff would never get built. So we actually started a whole education series that's now multiple chapters of stuff based on how you can manipulate technology and materials and systems to make things affordable, to make them perform better, to make it more appropriate so that we can, you know, get them built. Because if it doesn't get built, who cares? It's yeah. not the same. Agree. Agree. All right, one final question for each of you. Um, I know you're a New Yorker, Chris, and Julian, you're a Londoner. Greatest sporting event you've ever witnessed in person, starting with Mr. O'Hara, to date? Oh, uh, Penn State, Notre Dame. 91. <laughs> that was a snow game. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen a better college football game in my life. And the Irish clearly won. <laughs> um, but it, it was uh, amazing. I still think I have the poster from that. They, that, that year they started doing a poster called Irish impact. Uh-huh. Um, and that was the first one uh, with that game. It was absolutely incredible game. <laughs> Julian. Well, I'm going to, seeing as I'm, I've been a U.S. citizen for quite a long time, I'm going to go a U.S. Um, All right. And it was uh, back in the days of the, the Blake Street Bombers here in Colorado. Mm. And uh, I can't remember exactly who they were playing because I was so lucky. I had a, it was a, I had a, a family member who had season tickets. So I used to duck out every now and again, perhaps once a week to get to a game. And uh, I, I, there was one game where they, I think they hit, four home runs on the trot and I've never heard noise like it. It was fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's a great building too. Sorry, I can't remember who they were playing because I went to a lot of different games. But it doesn't matter. Very That's a great building to watch a baseball game. I remember being there in the oh, yeah. the World Series year and the run in the late eight, in you know late two thousands. It was nothing better when that place gets electric. So well yeah. gentlemen, um it's been awesome to talk to you. We really appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast. How can people learn more about the two of you and your team at Studio NYL? Uh, I think the easiest way is obviously our website, but then uh, Chris posts a lot on social media as well. So, Yeah, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, I don't know. I should see what a Google search brings up. Sometimes some pretty good stuff come, pops up on Google. <laughs> but... Um, we, we're, we're pretty pretty active. I know there's um, there'll be usually a lot of facade plus conferences will come out that we'll do. We do a lot of AIA lectures, but um, the best way to find out about us is just call. 
email pretty easy. We're, we're shockingly easy to get a hold of. Um, so go for it. We, if you want to, if you're passionate about this stuff, we'd love to talk to you. Awesome. Well, guys, um, always good to talk to you and uh, be safe. And uh, hopefully you all are back in the building soon. I know we all feel that same way with our own offices. So always good to talk to you. Great talking to you. Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA Design, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com.